0: Now, as you can well see, this passage follows uh, the previous chapter where Stephen, one of the seven men chosen to care for the neglected widows who was a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ in whom the Word of God and the Spirit of God dwelt powerfully, this man Stephen was accused. And so in chapter 6, verse 11 through 14, we heard some of the Jews bringing this accusation against Stephen. We have heard him, they said. We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. Now what's the charge? The charge is that Stephen was... Speaking blasphemous words against God, against Moses and the temple, and in doing so the charge is that Stephen corrupted Israel's true religion. But let's take one step back and let's think about what this charge is all about. What this charge, what this accusation is all about is what happened this morning. How a An elderly gentleman's heart stopped here during the Lutheran church's worship this morning. We are all going to die. You and I. Not any one of us, not one person in this room will ever escape that. We are all going to die. And when we die, we will stand before the Lord. And that is why the most important thing that we have to settle is whether we are right with God. And that's what this accusation is about. The Jewish people are accusing Stephen. You, you are corrupting the true religion, and you are perverting the right way of knowing God. That's the accusation, and that's the charge. And so in this chapter, Stephen begins his defense, and the way he does that, he takes them Uh, Where to where it all began, and he demonstrates to them and to us that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the 12 patriarchs, they had the same faith as Stephen, and that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the 12 patriarchs all hoped in Christ. So, that is Stephen's defense. And the first thing he shows us today is the faith of Abraham. The faith of Abraham. Now we see here how Stephen takes his critics, his accusers, all the way back to the Old Testament where everything began, where God called Abraham to leave behind his life and family. And I think sometimes we don't appreciate what kind of a call that was. You see, for most of human history, people lived with their families and never traveled more than a few miles away from their homes. That's been the pattern of human life for most of human history. Now, today, of course, in America, we think nothing of moving across the country for a job or to escape bad politics. It's nothing to us. But in those days, when God commanded Abraham leave your family and leave your home and follow me to where I will lead you. It was a command to give up everything, to sacrifice everything, to die to all his hopes and desires, all his security, comfort, and to follow God, not knowing where and how God would lead him. But God called him, and Abraham followed And that already shows us something remarkable about Abraham's faith. But by the way, faith always has an object. Faith is always faith in something. Faith is never just our psychological condition or what we are deciding to do in our heart. But faith is always attached to something. And our faith is only as good as the object to which faith is placed. So I think this already tells us that Abraham had an inkling that God was trustworthy, that God keeps his promises, that although he himself could not see his path before him, Abraham knew in some sense who God is and he followed God. And God eventually brought Abraham to the land of Canaan. But the thing is, God gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length. Now notice how God's promise to Abraham had two components that we can perceive here. God's promise was first about the place, and then it was about the people. First, it was about the place. God promised the land as Abraham's inheritance. But during Abraham's lifetime, Abraham would not see the fulfillment of the promise. Because Abraham, during his lifetime, never came into possession of the land at all, except for a small plot of land that he bought to bury his wife. And so during his entire life, Abraham remained a sojourner, a pilgrim, his whole life. And yet, even though he followed God, he gave up everything to follow God, and even though during his whole life God never fulfilled his promise to him, Abraham never wavered in his faith. Because you see, Abraham sensed that when God called him to follow him, God's desire for him was more than simply a little plot of land big or small. When God called Abraham to a life of sojourning to be a pilgrim, Abraham understood that God was actually leading him on a different pilgrimage to the heavenly city. And that's what he waited for. And Abraham never wavered in his faith. And note also that uh, the promise was also about the people. God promised to Abraham to give the land to him As a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. Now Abraham and Sarah, by the time the promise came to them, they were well past their childbearing years. And a lifetime of trying had made it clear that they could not conceive. But of course, we know this beautiful statement in Genesis 15. Abraham nevertheless believed the Lord And the Lord counted that faith to Abraham as righteousness. But Abraham hears something else from God that must have filled his heart with a tinge of sorrow and sadness because no parent likes to hear something like this about their children. The Lord told Abraham that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others. Who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. We as parents, we all wish better things for our children. I wonder what Abraham was thinking when he heard that his offspring will continue to be sojourners and worse, that they will become slaves and suffer greatly for 400 years. And yet Abraham also heard that promise that God will bring them out of that place and that they will worship God in this place. And what Abraham grasped in his faith, in his wisdom and insight, he grasped that the suffering of his immediate offspring would lead to the blessing that God promised to him. That when his immediate offspring has suffered for 400 years, then the great and precious promises that God had made to Abraham would be fulfilled. And this pointed Abraham, and this points us to Abraham's ultimate offspring. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul makes this statement, which is very fascinating, but which really is central to understanding God's promises to Abraham. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring. You see, what Paul is telling us, when God came to Abraham and gave this promise to Abraham, Paul is saying that that promise was actually given to that ultimate offspring of Abraham, who is Jesus Christ. Because you see, Abraham's life experience, the experience of his immediate offspring were all pointing to the true offspring of Abraham, who is Jesus. And it is in Jesus Christ, Paul says, that all the promises of God find their yes in him. You see, just as Abraham's immediate offsprings, they suffered, and after their suffering, they were brought in to enjoy the blessings that God had promised the ultimate offspring of Abraham, Jesus would suffer. And through his suffering, through his exodus, the great and precious promises that God had made to Abraham would be fulfilled. That is to say, from the very beginning, long before Moses and the temple, of which Stephen is accused of insulting and betraying long before Moses and the temple true religion meant promise and faith god promised abraham believed and abraham's faith and his heart were not set on this world's fading glories but he hoped in christ dad is the fountainhead of Israel's true religion, the faith of Abraham. It was a faith directed toward Jesus Christ. And then Stephen also then takes us uh, through the experiences of the patriarchs, and then he shows us the salvation of the patriarchs. Now, God kept His promise to Abraham, and he became the father of Isaac, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs, the 12 fathers. The 12 sons of Jacob became the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel, and they are Israel's revered founding fathers. But the argument that Stephen is making here is that Stephen's accusers cannot turn to the patriarchs for support in their attack of the gospel. Because like Abraham, the 12 patriarchs, they lived long before Moses and the temple. And like Abraham, the 12 patriarchs walked before God with faith before Moses and the temple. And Stephen demonstrates here that their only hope was the same Jesus Christ that Stephen was proclaiming. And then Stephen tells us the well-known story of Joseph. We all know this story, don't we? Uh, Jacob had 12 sons. He favored Joseph. And Joseph had even from his childhood had indications from the Lord that God had set him apart uh, ahead of his uh, brothers, and indeed God had set Joseph uh, from apart from birth for a special purpose, and Joseph was God's chosen instrument to bring glory to God's name, and Joseph was God's chosen instrument to bring great grace and life to many people. But before that happened, the patriarchs, Joseph's brothers, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. You see, the patriarchs, the sons of Jacob, they hated and rejected the one that God had chosen and called to save them. and they sold Joseph for 20 pieces of silver. And how sad that in this way, and in this way only, the Jews who accused Stephen were the children of the patriarchs because, you see, they had sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver because they hated and rejected their Savior. And as we read about Joseph's suffering in Genesis, He suffers terribly. He is betrayed by his brothers. He is sold as a slave. And even under such trying and terrible circumstances, he does his best. He proves himself a faithful and a reliable man, only to be falsely accused, to be imprisoned, and then to be forgotten by the very people that he had helped. And when you look at Joseph's afflictions, it seems clear And it seems to prove that God had forsaken him. But Stephen reminds us here in verse 9, God was with him. And actually, when you read that part of Genesis, that's the phrase that is repeated throughout Joseph's trials. God was with him. You see... You see this in the book of Job too. Job's friends come and see the great suffering that Job is enduring, and the conclusion is, you are suffering because God has forsaken you. It wasn't right for Job, and it wasn't right for Joseph. You see, Joseph was afflicted very severely, and yet God was with him. It was God's will to afflict him so that others might live. So that at the end of Joseph's life in Genesis chapter 50, Joseph says this to his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God, God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive. And so in that way, Joseph also pointed to Jesus. It was God's will to afflict Jesus Jesus did not suffer, and he was not afflicted because God had forsaken him. But God was with him in his suffering and in his affliction because God had called Jesus to suffer so that others might live. And Jesus, of course, is Emmanuel, God with us. Not only was God with Jesus in his afflictions because of Jesus, We know that in our afflictions, God is with us. Because Jesus is God with us. And so what this tells us is that when we think about the lives of the patriarchs and Joseph, we realize that that whole event and experience was pointing us to Jesus who would suffer and die, how the innocent one, the righteous one, was suffer that we might live. This is Israel's religion. You see, Stephen did not forsake the faith of the fathers. The fathers, the patriarchs, they found forgiveness and life through the very brother they had rejected and hated. And Stephen was proclaiming forgiveness and life in Jesus whom the Jews had hated and rejected it was not stephen who had forsaken the true path and the true religion it was stephen's accusers who had betrayed god so on the one hand we saw the faith of abraham how his faith was placed Ultimately, in Jesus Christ. And we saw the salvation of the patriarchs, how they found forgiveness and life through the brother that they had hated and rejected. And that brings us to the third and the last point, and it is a question What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? Once again, you are all going to die. There is no question more important to you and to me than whether you are right with God. And there is no question more important to you and to me than what have you done with Jesus. Now, isn't it strange how The people who least understood God's heart, people who least understood God's purpose, accused Stephen of corrupting God's ways. And I think it often plays out like that. Not only for Jesus and not only for Stephen, uh, but for us today as well. People who least understand the Word of God will bring accusations against God's people. But notice how Stephen is the very man that Paul commends all Christians to be in 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, he commended Timothy and all Christians to be as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now, I don't have much time to dwell on this point, but do you see how wonderfully Stephen demonstrated himself as the disciple of the Word of God and of Jesus Christ. How the Bible, the Word of God, just flows out of him. But perhaps that's a point for another sermon, but let me move on. But I do want you to keep that in mind. Stephen proved himself as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the Word of Truth. Stephen's accusers, on the other hand, they had no real grasp of God's word, and consequently they made themselves the enemy of the gospel and of God. Let me say this to your loved ones. There is no other wisdom. There is no other clarity. There is no true knowledge of God apart from the word of God Mediated to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what Stephen had a firm and solid grasp on, and his accusers did not. And so I ask you this morning, with all that you have learned, what do we do with Jesus? And there are two things that we must know. First, the first thing that we all need to know is how desperately we need Jesus how desperately we need Jesus. And the second thing we need to know is how willingly Jesus gives himself to those who ask. Now notice how as Abraham followed God with faith, God gave him the covenant of circumcision. God confirmed his promises, which were not yet fulfilled for Abraham, with the physical sign of circumcision. And that sign of circumcision was meant to encourage Abraham to continue to seek God, to persevere in seeking God with faith. And circumcision in Scripture largely conveys two points. First, it conveys the point that that which is defiled must be cut away. And so, in that way, it points to the great need to have our hearts purified before God. That's why in the Old Testament, we frequently read a statement, circumcise your heart. Because unless your heart is purified, it will be rejected by God. It will be discarded. So, that's the uh, first uh, main point that circumcision makes. Second, circumcision makes the point that the cleansing that we desperately need comes by faith in God's promises. That is why Abraham um, circumcised Isaac on the eighth day. Abraham put the sign of covenant on his son on the eighth day. An eight-day-old child is in no position to decide for himself. And the sign of circumcision was in no ways an expression of what Isaac had already achieved or decided in his heart. It was rather Abraham and Sarah, because they were God's covenant people, they would not bring up their child except as a child of the covenant. And they understood the purpose for which God gave the sign of circumcision was to stir up faith, in the heart. And so they they gave the sign of circumcision to their son Isaac on the 8th day because it was meant to draw faith out from his heart, who cleanses the sinner. In other words, circumcision was a means of grace. It was a means of grace to stir up faith. So how wrong the Jewish people were to have their faith placed in the building of the temple without faith in God. To place their trust in the law without turning to the Lord who humbles them through the law and gives them a Savior. And how wrong they were to boast in circumcision without trusting Jesus with faith. Because the covenant sign of circumcision was meant to stir up faith in God who cleanses the sinner. But it was a sign that was given only to Jewish males. But in the fullness of time, God sent his son, and Jesus Christ opened wide the floodgates of his covenant grace. And that is why now, it's not just the Jewish males who are entitled to the covenant sign, but male and female, not just Jewish, but male and female of every tribe and language and nation, they receive the covenant sign of baptism. And baptism serves the same purpose in the Bible. Baptism has two main meanings Jesus called his cross his baptism to undergo and the New Testament uh, compares the baptism to the flood that they came upon the world in judgment against sin so on the one hand baptism conveys the message that unless you repent you will be judged and you will be wiped away but on the other hand baptism promises cleansing from sin it functions exactly the same way as circumcision and so baptism now calls male and female jewish and gentiles to recognize on the on the one hand we desperately need cleansing we are sinners we need forgiveness And baptism also reminds us that Jesus gives himself willingly, without reservation, without hesitation, to all who would come to him and ask him for forgiveness and for cleansing. That's the right way of following God. And that, in a shadowy way, before the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That was the substance of Abraham's faith and the faith of the patriarchs. And that is our faith today. So I ask you this morning, know these two things. We all desperately need cleansing. And unless we are purified, we will be cut off, cut away, rejected by god we desperately need cleansing but also jesus gives himself willingly and freely to all who will ask forgiveness so what have you done with jesus have you come to jesus for cleansing If you haven't done so, would you do it now, today? And if you have done so, keep coming to Him for cleansing. No, your salvation is not in doubt. But it is our daily coming to Jesus that we grow in peace and assurance. It is in our daily coming to Jesus that we become fruitful and useful to Him. And know this, brothers and sisters, that Jesus suffered and died, that you might live. Amen. Now let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have always taught the same and one truth, and that the way to you is by grace and by faith. We see that in Abraham. We see that in the patriarchs. And most clearly we see that in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for giving us your Son in whose suffering and death and resurrection our sins are forgiven and we have a way into your kingdom and into your heart. And we pray that Jesus Christ would always be our joy and our pride and that we would always find our assurance and our comfort in him. Father, I pray for all those who are struggling with their sin, with their guilt, and with their shame, that you would encourage them to know that they can lay their sins at the foot of the cross and receive a cleansing and forgiveness that is free and complete. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.